Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this episode of New Books in Philosophy, which is part of the New Books Network. I'm Robert Talese. I'm professor of philosophy at Vanderbilt University. I co-host the program with Carrie Figder, Alexis McLeod, and Sarah Tyson. My guest today is Ilya Soman. Ilya is professor of law at George Mason University. He specializes in constitutional law and property law, but listeners who work in political theory will likely know him from his work on public ignorance. Ilya's new book is titled Free to Move, Foot Voting, Migration, and Political Freedom. It's just been published with Oxford University Press. And when we think of voting, we typically have in mind elections and campaigns. Election day. In this intuitive sense, voting is a matter of casting a ballot in a process that results in a collective decision. After election day, the votes are counted, and on most views, the majority rules. But things with voting really aren't so simple. For one thing, citizens bring different levels of informedness and ignorance into the voting booth. What's more, famous mathematical analyses cast doubt on the very idea of a majority will that could be revealed by processes of voting. Given these facts, what are we to make of democracy? Now, in the new book, Free to Move, Ilya Soman defends the idea that foot voting is an essential element of democratic governance. Foot voting is the capacity of individuals to move to the jurisdiction or the nation whose government or policies most suit their preferences or to select from various options their favored providers of various kinds of services. As usual, there's a lot to talk about, but let's begin as we usually do with our guest. Hello, Ilya. How are you? Good. How are you? Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's great to have you on. I'm doing fine today. Um, So, you know, before we get into talking about the book, which I I will, I will say, you know, um, has a, an additional kind of significance, given that um, many of us are on lockdown uh, and are not free to move. Um, but before we get into uh, into some of that, you know, why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself? I'm a law professor at George Mason University. Uh, I've been here now since 2003, which seems like a really long time. Uh, this book has origins uh, in in two aspects of my biography. One that will jump out to most people is that I'm an immigrant myself. Uh, I'm from the Soviet Union, so I personally experienced the enormous benefits of foot voting insofar as the U.S., for all its flaws, is just vastly superior to the Soviet Union on you know many grounds, both 
uh, in terms of freedom, in terms of economic opportunity and so on. Uh, but my more immediate interest in migration was actually generated less by my personal story than by the fact that I started out my career in part as a student of federalism. Uh, and one of the things that interested me about federalism was the opportunity for people to vote with their feet between different jurisdictions in a federal system, between different states and local governments, for example. And I wrote a number of articles and uh, eventually even a book about how foot voting within federal systems uh, has various benefits uh, that uh, in some respects is superior to ballot box voting. Uh, But gradually I came to realize that international migration also is a form of foot voting and in addition that it has many commonalities with domestic foot voting. And I also realized that while these commonalities are definitely there, in general, uh, people who write about migration pay very little uh, attention to foot voting under federalism and vice versa. Uh, And the same goes for voting with your feet in the private sector, such as choosing between different private planned communities or different private schools and so on. There's a large literature on that, but uh, it has relatively little overlap with the literature on federalism and even less with the literature on international migration. Uh, so I thought there was room for a book that could bring all three of these different types of foot voting together in a unified theory and explain how uh, it has important advantages over traditional ballot box voting and also how Uh, It has tremendous benefits in other respects as well. I would add that the objections that are raised against international migration, uh, actually almost all of them apply just as readily against internal migration. uh, And therefore, uh, that also makes it worthwhile to view these as a unified whole in that if you buy many of these standard objections, you also have to swallow the bullet that uh, they would justify restricting a lot of internal freedom of movement as well. Fabulous. Um, so, you know, um, one of the 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 interesting um, sort of threads that run through the book, uh, which you touched on uh, in your um, uh, your remarks just now, uh, is the connection um, between ballot box voting and foot voting. And um, it was interesting to hear you say now just now that this was a realization to you that these two things. Um, uh, might um, sort of complement each other, or at least foot voting might be a way to correct some of the the difficulties with um, with ballot box voting. So why don't we begin there? Because I think that there's some uh, interesting background to your previous in your previous work uh, to part of what's going on, at least in the setup uh, of of the new book. Um, so as listeners might know, in some earlier work, you've explored the problem of public political ignorance. Um, Particularly, you've argued that most democratic citizens are rationally ignorant to a degree that calls into question many popular, uh, at least among political theorists and political philosophers, conceptions of democracy. You know, I'm thinking particularly of these strongly participatory and deliberative uh, views that are still um, uh, pretty popular, uh, at least among theorists. Um, and the idea uh, of that early work is that, you know, there's a... Um, uh, there's an el- there's a degree of public political ignorance that um, is rational and should be expected and might not be uh, a terrible thing in and of itself, but we certainly shouldn't uh, expect it to go away anytime soon. And that that kind of ignorance shows us that um, there should be some constraints on what sorts of things we should expect government to do and what sorts of things we should allow them 
to do. Um, so can you give us a little bit of that background, the sort of critique of ballot box voting as this um, singularly important democratic mechanism? We usually think of ballot box voting as the principal way that uh, people can decide what sorts of government policies they want to live under. But it has two significant weaknesses. One is that the individual voters' odds of actually uh, making a decisive impact on the outcome of an election are almost always infinitesimally small. In a U.S. presidential election, it's about one in 60 million. It is somewhat higher. If you live in a swing state, it could be as high as one in one million in that event, but it's still very low. Uh, even in local or state elections, it's usually very low, except in perhaps the very smallest New England town meetings or the like. So we generally wouldn't say that you have meaningful religious freedom, for example, if you have only a one in one million chance of being able to choose what religion you're going to practice or not practice. We wouldn't say you have meaningful freedom of speech uh, if you have only a one in one million chance of being able to affect what viewpoints you get to express. Uh, and I would say the same thing is true of political freedom and political choice. If you have only a one chance in one million or one in 60 million or whatever it is uh, of affecting the outcome, then your political freedom is at the very least severely limited. Uh, the second uh, flaw of ballot box voting actually arises naturally from the first, uh, which is what you already touched on, the issue of rational ignorance, that given the extremely low odds of affecting the outcome, uh, it's actually rational for most voters to pay little or no attention to government and public policy, because even if they were to learn a lot, uh, the chance that their knowledge would make a difference to anything is very low. And in fact, survey data repeatedly shows uh, that voters know very little, even about basic aspects of government. For example, only about a third can even name the three branches of federal government. Most voters don't know how the federal government spends its money. They often don't know which government officials are responsible for which issues and so forth. So if you believe uh, that political uh, freedom or political choice requires any kind of informed consent. For example, uh, the American Medical Association requires informed consent for medical treatment. Doctors generally, in most cases, are not allowed to treat a patient uh, unless they get their informed consent. Uh, it's reasonable, I think, that if you're going to have any kind of consent required for the rule of government officials, it should be at least somewhat informed as well. Uh, yet we're nowhere near that, despite the fact that like medical procedures, government policies often do involve great risk. Some of them are literally matters of life and death, as we're seeing now during the coronavirus pandemic, but we see it also at other times as well. Uh, and yet uh, most voters are nowhere near having informed consent. Uh, so what you really have is uh, democratic government as traditionally practiced is like having a doctor uh, whose treatments you have no real understanding of, and you also have uh, almost no chance of affecting what the doctor does uh, or doesn't do. Uh, and that strikes me as a very problematic state of affairs, both from the standpoint of different types of democratic theory, from the standpoint of different theories of uh, political consent or government legitimacy. I go through some of those theories in chapter one of the book, uh, but even aside from any sort of grand or high food in theory, uh, it seems very problematic uh, that you have so little real political freedom through ballot box voting and that the decisions people make uh, are usually so poorly informed. 
Excellent. And um, am I right? Uh, or let me just ask you to comment just on one sort of um, additional uh, sort of wrinkle in that kind of argument that you're just laying out about the rational ignorance. Um, because I, I take it that there's sort of an empirical premise that underlies um, uh, the um, the move from um, data that show that the average uh, American voter can't name, for example, the, the three branches of government identified in the Constitution, um, to some broader claims about political ignorance in some more widespread sense. Um, am I right that there's reason to think that um, – uh, ignorance about sort of, you know, the, the number of senators, <laughs> uh, and, um, uh, the, 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 what the three branches of government are, the ignorance about those sort of civics, you know, grade school civics class, uh, kinds of, uh, uh matters highly correlates with, um, uh, more, what we might think of as more relevant policy connected, uh, ignorance about, you know, um, uh, who's responsible for taking action with respect to unemployment or uh, uh, taxation and these sorts of things. Is that right? Yes, this is something I get into in much greater detail in my previous book, Democracy and Political Ignorance, which you alluded to earlier. It is indeed the case that political ignorance and knowledge correlate with substantive policy views on a wide variety of issues, uh, including taxes, healthcare, international trade, immigration, and many other things. Uh, and that even after controlling for other variables, more ignorant voters have different views than uh, less ignorant ones, uh, even if you control for things like partisanship, race, sex, uh, age, income, and you know other uh, sorts of things. I would add that political ignorance is particularly relevant now. It has an impact on how uh, governments are punished or assessed for disaster preparation and planning. One of the reasons why not only the U.S., but many other governments were very poorly prepared for the coronavirus pandemic is that uh, there's a history of voters rewarding governments for disaster relief spending much more than they ever reward them for disaster preparedness spending. Uh, and so preparing for disasters which are low risk at any one time but are likely to happen at some point in the future is usually a low priority for democratic governments because in, until the disaster actually happens, most voters don't notice whether the government is well prepared for a disaster or not, don't focus on uh, the quality of planning. And that's one of the reasons why we've gotten into our current fix with the coronavirus, uh, which is that over a period of quite a few years, uh, uh, political leaders of both major parties didn't do that much to prepare for pandemics, even though experts told them that this is a real risk. And I would add, by the way, that the same thing happened in many European countries. So this is not just a peculiarity of the U.S. political system. Uh, if voters were more knowledgeable, uh, then uh, they would incentivize governments to do things like pandemic planning ahead of time and to stock hop on necessary supplies and so forth. But uh, uh, I don't remember pandemic planning being much of an issue or even any kind of an issue in any uh, election previous to the one that's upcoming where the pandemic has actually happened. Right. Um, yeah, that's, you know, it, it is a, um, a certain kind of uh sort of tragedy of institutions, right? You know, sort of like when they're working well, they're kind of hard to see. And so <laughs> when you've got good policies, especially of the kind that we're now talking about, um, uh, you know, disasters and sort of 
think preventing bad things from happening, if they work, the bad things don't happen. So it's easy to forget that they're working well. And therefore, it's also easy uh, uh, to lose sense of what their value is, um, <laughs> which yeah. uh, I guess is just a problem with, you know, with institutions, you know, in, in general, you know, when they're working well, they kind of sort of go on in the background. And it's hard. to. Uh, so I'm not sure that that actually is a problem with institutions in general, because when we vote with our feet in the private sector, we do, in fact, plan for contingencies of rainy days. Uh, as a matter of course, most people have life insurance, auto insurance, homeowners insurance, and so forth. And we plan in advance, most of us, for the possibility that you might get into a car crash or that there's an accident with your house and so forth. Uh, but when we vote at the ballot box, uh, we pay only very limited attention to issues because of this problem of rational ignorance. So we make very little effort to ensure uh, that our government takes the kind of precautions that in our uh, personal lives, in the private sector, we take as a matter of course. Good. Um, so uh, let me let's get into the to, to the book. Um, uh, the. Um, the, the beginning of the book draws on this sort of um, uh, uh, concern about uh, rational ignorance. Um, and you wind up arguing, and this is a, a thread that r- works through the book, that although ballot box voting is necessary in a democracy or um, uh, is, is part of the democratic package, um, it's ultimately of limited value for the reasons that we were just discussing. Um, and you want to propose this idea of foot voting uh, as a complement to it, because in some sense, foot voting, as you say, outperforms ballot box voting. Can you tell us what you mean by outperforms there? Foot voting is better than ballot box voting, at least in the vast majority of situations on the two dimensions that I mentioned earlier. Uh, one is uh, you can make a choice that actually has a real like high likelihood of making a difference. So when you decide where you're going to live in a federal system, when you decide to migrate from one country to another, if you're allowed to do that, and when you make choices in the private sector, in most cases, uh, you have a very high chance of that choice actually mattering. Uh, granted, uh, if you have a family as I do, uh, you can't just decide it just as you know me deciding without consulting anyone, but still uh, if I make a joint decision with my wife or with other relatives, I have a much greater say than I do uh, in ballot box voting. I have perhaps one chance in two of affecting the outcome as opposed to one chance in a million. Uh, so it's much more meaningful freedom of choice in that respect. Secondly, for that very reason, uh, you have a much stronger incentive to make an informed decision. We already talked about how uh, people make better informed decisions about their personal disaster planning, if you will, uh, than they do about uh, government's disaster planning at the ballot box, because you know that the personal disaster planning, there's a good chance it will actually make a difference what you do. Uh, whereas even if you become very well informed about pandemic policy or disaster preparedness generally, and you cast your vote in an election on that basis, the chance that your vote will make a difference uh, is extremely uh, small. And both in this book and even more so in my previous book, Democracy and Political Ignorance, I go through a good deal of evidence, some of it experimental, uh, some of it uh, empirical and historical, uh, which indicates that foot voters do, in fact, uh, make decisions better on the whole than ballot box voters do. It's striking, for example, that 
even in periods when most foot voters were illiterate and there certainly was no internet or modern information technology still, uh, they did a good job of identifying, for example, which countries had greater uh, freedom and opportunity and acted accordingly. Uh, that's how the U.S. was populated in the 19th century uh, by many millions of foot voters from uh, Europe, Asia, and elsewhere. Uh, similarly, a particularly dramatic example is that of African Americans in the Jim Crow era South, many of whom uh, had very low levels of education and their state governments often deliberately tried to keep them in ignorance of the fact that conditions were relatively better in Northern and Western states. Despite that, many hundreds of thousands of African-Americans did leave the South for states with less discriminatory policies, uh, even though the difficulty of getting relevant information was far greater uh, than it would be for most foot voters today or ballot box voters today. Uh, so we have dramatic examples, historical, and also we can talk about the experimental evidence if you're interested, uh, which show that uh, foot voters on the whole make better informed decisions than ballot box voters. I would add lastly that it's not simply a matter of getting more information. It's also a matter of evaluating that information more objectively in that when it comes to ballot box voters, the issue is not just that they know relatively little it's that when they do acquire information, they often evaluate it in a highly biased way uh, because evaluating information objectively often takes time and effort. Uh, it requires trying to restrain your various biases. And on the whole, uh, ballot box voters have very little incentive to do that. Uh, economist Brian Kaplan calls it rational irrationality. Uh, when uh, you acquire information for purposes other than seeking the truth, uh, then you actually have an incentive where it's rational to uh, do a poor job of evaluating the information. And many uh, ballot box voters actually act as what I call in my earlier work political fans that uh, rather than acquiring information to be better voters, they acquire it because they enjoy following politics. They enjoy cheering on their favorite party uh, or their favorite political leader ideology. And as a result, uh, they're very biased in a way to evaluate information. They tend to overvalue anything that reinforces their pre-existing views and undervalue anything that cuts the other way. It is certainly not my view that foot voters are perfectly rational and objective in the way that they evaluate information or that they're you know, complete Vulcans that rely on pure logic like Mr. Spock would or something <laughs> like that. But on the whole, they're uh, considerably better than ballot box voters are. Good. And would you would you add also that um, uh, ballot that, that foot voting um, uh, outperforms ballot box voting in that um, it also results in a um, in a condition politically that looks like it's democratically superior, where there'll be a greater share of people living under policies that they themselves endorse. Yeah, if you believe that uh, one of the goals of democracy should be to maximize the number of people who live under policies that they like, then expanding foot voting uh, can can do that, especially if it's combined with a considerable degree of decentralization of political power, uh, that the more opportunities people have to vote with their feet, uh, the more they can choose among diverse options and choose the uh, policies or any package of policies that they like the best. So uh, I'm not suggesting that 
even under the best possible system of foot voting, everybody will get to live under exactly the perfect package of policies in their point of view, uh, but they'll get closer to it uh, than if you have a more one-size-fits-all approach under ballot box voting, and their choice among the different policy packages will, on the whole, at least be better informed for reasons uh, I mentioned earlier. Great. Um, so let's um, sort of disambiguate and then sort of talk about, you know, uh, uh, serially, um, the sort of three sites that uh, that um, uh, you identify in the book, we might call them sites for foot voting. Uh, we've been um, uh, moving between uh, some of these, uh, but let's... Um, uh, get them distinguished. So there's, on the one hand, there's jurisdictional foot voting, sort of moving from one state to another in a federal system, for example. Then there's international foot voting, migration, immigration, these sorts of things. And then uh, private sector foot voting. Um, and I want to ask about each in turn. So let's begin with uh, the foot voting uh, um, between jurisdictions within a federal system. Um, so focusing strictly on that now, what are its advantages and what are some of the difficulties that are often um, uh, raised with this kind of foot voting as a democratic instrument? And why don't you think those are uh, decisive? So the big advantages are some of the ones we already talked about earlier that it offers you greater freedom of choice than ballot box voting alone. And also uh, you, may, you can make a more informed decision. In addition, in a relatively large federal system, large in the sense that it has a, a, a wide array of options and many different regional or local governments that you can choose from, you can have a very wide uh, range of options to pick from. In the U.S., we have 50 states, but we also actually have many thousands of different types of local governments. And so that offers potentially a pretty wide range of options. Uh, so uh, I think if you look historically also, uh, interjurisdictional foot voting in federal systems in the U.S., but also in some other countries, has been particularly beneficial to the poor and disadvantaged. We already mentioned the example of African Americans leaving uh, racially segregated states for states where, of course, there was far from a complete absence of racism, but it was uh, much better, relatively speaking, than in the South. Uh, there are other examples, such as gays and lesbians moving to more tolerant jurisdictions, which uh, gave a big boost to gay rights movement. Uh, similarly, in the 19th century, I talk about how some Western states, in order to attract women, they had an imbalance of men relative to women because the early settlers were disproportionately men. They wanted to attract women. One of the ways that they did that was they offered women more rights than uh, and greater equality, relatively speaking, were available in the Eastern states. And that gave a big boost to the movement for uh, equality for women. The Wyoming Territory, for example, was the first American jurisdiction to offer voting rights for women. Uh, the state of Utah, which is not otherwise historically known for being very progressive on uh, <laughs> gender, but it also was an early adopter, not only of voting rights for women, but of other uh, more equal rights for women as well. And it was because of this interjurisdictional foot voting. Uh, so uh, often, uh, foot voting opportunities can be enhanced if jurisdictions actually compete for foot voters, as in this case, uh, the Western jurisdictions were. But even if they don't compete, even if they just have diverse policies for other kinds of reasons, uh, that creates opportunities. Uh, what are the objections that are often raised? Uh, one obvious one, and this applies to even more to international foot voting, is moving costs, that it can be costly to move from place to place. Uh, not just in terms of 
the direct costs of moving, but also in terms of uh, you may be moving away from your current job, from your family, from the community that you're familiar with. And so all of these are costs broadly conceived, even if they don't all show up as dollar and cent monetary costs. Uh, another objection that's often raised is the uh, claim that you might end up with a race to bottom, that uh, state and local governments will only really want to attract big business interests uh, because those people or those interests provide tax revenue. And so they'll adopt policies which benefit the business interests, but screw over everybody else. Uh, and I think these objections and some others that I discuss in the book are worth taking seriously. Uh, but uh, they're not nearly as strong as they seem at first sight. Uh, in terms of moving costs, while moving costs are real, they're not so great as to prevent many millions of people from still uh, voting with their feet on a regular basis. Over 40% of Americans live in states different from where they're born. Over 60% live in uh, jurisdictions different from, where they were born, from where they were born, if you include different local governments. And there are ways we can make moving costs lower. One obvious one is that the more power is decentralized to lower levels of government, uh, the lower the moving costs. It's much cheaper to move to a different city or town within the same general metropolitan area than to move to another state. Uh, and obviously, in places there are several states in close proximity, like here in the uh, Washington, D.C. metro area, uh, then even the cost of moving from one state to another can be relatively low. Uh, on the race to bottom issue, uh, I think both empirically and conceptually, it's not as big a deal as it's often made out to be. Uh, for among other things, the assumption that states and localities only care about attracting business interests just isn't true. Uh, ordinary people and workers uh, also provide a large amount of state and local tax revenue. Uh, and so even if the state or locality only cares about tax revenue, then it's not enough for them to want business interests. I would add also that even from the standpoint of attracting business interests, you want your state or your locality to be a good environment for the workers that they hire, uh, because uh, if things in your state are really awful, if the public services are bad, if there's high crime, if there's a lot of pollution, workers either won't want to live there or they'll want a wage premium to live there. That is, they want to be paid more because of the bad conditions. Uh, and employers don't actually like to be in jurisdictions where they have to pay wage premiums to workers to live there. Uh, so even from the standpoint of, of attracting business interests, it just simply isn't the case that uh, that if you want to attract them, all you have to do is pay attention to the self-interest that businesses very narrowly conceived. You have to pay attention to these other uh, qualities as well. Uh, there are other kinds of objections as well, but I think those are two big ones. Uh, another common objection that's worth mentioning that's made in the U.S. a lot, though not necessarily in other federal systems, is the fear that if you decentralize power, that will be bad for uh, unpopular minorities. There's obviously a history of state and local governments adopting repressive and discriminatory policies towards African-Americans, but also uh, towards other groups as well. So it's often said we need to centralize power in order to protect these minority groups. Uh, I think it's definitely the case that uh, state and local governments often have treated minorities very badly. Uh, but for reasons I discuss at greater length in the book, it doesn't follow that means we need to centralize power as much as possible uh, because, among other things, the federal government also has a problematic history in its treatment <laughs> of minorities, to put it mildly. Uh, and in addition, 
at various periods in American history, minorities have actually been big beneficiaries of the opportunity to vote with your feet. Uh, so I think definitely we do need and we have, but maybe we should have stronger uh, constitutional constraints on various types of state or local discrimination against minorities and persecution of minorities and so forth. But it doesn't follow that we need to centralize policy generally because as a general rule, the federal government is the friend of minorities, whereas states is their, are their enemies. I think if nothing, if we learn nothing else from the Trump era, uh, we should learn that that isn't necessarily true, that you know Trump and his friends in Congress do not look like great friends of for instance, uh, non-white immigrants uh, or gays and lesbians or a number of other uh, minority groups. Uh, that's not to say that the federal government is always uh, bad in its attitude towards minorities, but we should not make the assumption that centralized power is necessarily, as a general rule, better for minorities than decentralization. Good, good, good. good. And, and that makes a, um, a nice segue into the next sort of um, uh, uh, aspect of, of of foot voting, which is the the international, the, the, the sort of migration across national borders, um, and so you argue that um, uh, removing or greatly reducing the um, barriers to uh, migration across borders, to foot voting across national uh, territories, uh, is a really important piece of the puzzle. Um, now, listeners will probably be uh, familiar with at least some of this work. Uh, you know, a lot of political theory, um, a lot of political theorists, rather, um, have advanced various conceptions of, um, you know, national rights to self-determination and uh, the national right to exclude um, uh, that would um, justify um, pretty tight restrictions on uh, immigration. Um, you find those arguments unpersuasive. So can you tell us a little bit about both the benefits of um, international foot voting and uh, some of the reasons why you think the the more nationalist uh, kinds of uh, arguments that are popular among political theorists are not um, uh, as compelling as they might seem? Sure. The thing that attracted me to the issue of international migration is that when I looked at the literature on this subject, it instantly, very quickly became clear to me uh, that the benefits of foot voting that I first studied in a domestic context are even greater in the international context. And that's true for several reasons. First, the differences between uh, governments and an international level are just much greater than they are within virtually any domestic uh, political system. So if you look at the difference between whatever you think is the best American state and the worst American state, uh, it's trivial compared to the difference between the United States and Mexico to say nothing of such truly horrendous governments as Cuba or North Korea or Zimbabwe or many others, which are horribly oppressive in many ways. So the transformation that can be made in people's lives through freer international migration uh, is much greater than anything that can be achieved through internal foot voting, though the latter is also very significant in, in many cases. So the gains to be had are huge. Uh, they're enormous in terms of human rights. Uh, think of uh, women fleeing patriarchal societies and moving to more egalitarian ones. Think of oppressed religious, ethnic, and political minorities uh, fleeing repressive regimes. Uh, and think also of the many millions of people who, because they live under bad governments, corrupt governments, ones with 
badly flawed policies, even if those people are very talented and hardworking, they're basically most likely condemned to poverty for the rest of their lives. Whereas if they can move to a society with a better government and economy, they can rapidly improve their uh, economic well-being and also make the world as a whole more productive. Uh, the standard economist estimate of the effects of having open migration, open borders throughout the world is that world GDP uh, would roughly double. That is, the world would become twice as wealthy as it currently is, with many of the gains going disproportionately to the poor and oppressed of world, the worst off people. There is no other policy change that I know of that can be made that uh, would result in anywhere near so much benefit, not just in the narrow economic sense, but also in the broad sense of providing people with greater freedom and opportunity. Uh, in the book, I talk about uh, expanding human capacities uh, following uh, A.K. Sen's famous uh, discussion of it. And there's few, if any, better ways to do that than allowing more people to migrate freely across international boundaries. The benefits here are truly enormous. Uh, I would add also that from the standpoint of political freedom, one of the benefits is that currently about a third of the world's population lives in societies that are not that are uh, not democratic and therefore they have no meaningful freedom of political choice at all. Another third lives in ones which Freedom House classifies as only partly democratic. So there is some electoral competition, but it's very dubious. So for those people, at least in the short to medium term, maybe the long term as well, international migration is their only option of having any kind of political freedom at all. Uh, and that makes international migration also even more imperative uh, because otherwise uh, this many millions of people are trapped in a complete lack of political freedom. Uh, now, you mentioned the issue of theories of sovereignty uh, or theories of rights to exclude of national governments. In the book I go through in chapter five, a variety of these kinds of theories. Here, I'll just mention two broad categories of such theories and then briefly discuss my responses to them. Uh, and these are ideas that the government has a right to exclude people. Uh, one standard rationale for it, the one I think you hear the most often in many places around the world, uh, is that this right inheres in a particular ethnic or racial or cultural group that, quote unquote, owns a territory and therefore has the right to exclude members of other groups uh, from it. Uh, so by that standard, France is for the French, Germany is for the Germans, Japan is for the Japanese, uh, and so forth. Uh, and I have several objections to this kind of theory. I'll just mention some of the most significant ones. Uh, one is that uh, if you believe that governments have the power to use coercion to protect an existing group's culture or uh, language or the like, it follows that they should have that right not just against uh, migrants who might bring cultural change, but also against natives who might do so. Uh, so it's often the case that the older generation complains about cultural changes brought by the younger generation. So if we can use massive coercion against migrants to prevent them from changing a culture, uh, it follows that it can be used against natives as well. Uh, another problem with this theory, perhaps the most significant one, uh, is that it's not easy to tell you know, how we decide which group has the right to which territory. You can say, well, this is the group that has occupied the territory and developed it. But if you look back through history, uh, virtually all currently existing governments 
exist on territories which have had multiple groups inhabiting them. And moreover, to the extent that one group has achieved dominance or is the majority, it's usually through some kind of combination of conquest, repression, and coercion. Uh, What we today call France is actually the result of a long series of conquests and dispossessions and the like. And the same story can be told about virtually every other country in the world, Germany, Russia, the US, Canada, Australia, and so forth. Uh, So if you look back historically, it is simply not the case that in virtually any country you can say, well, the currently dominant, the current majority group is there, is a majority because they, you know, they were the only ones living on the land, the only ones who developed it. And, you know, no, they usually became that way through coercion. Uh, Finally, I think the idea of Uh, a single ethnic or cultural group being able to dominate a territory and exclude others, it is at odds with the ideal of racial and ethnic non-discrimination. Most liberal Democrats would say that at the very least, there should be a presumption against discrimination on the basis of race or ethnicity, uh, because those are morally arbitrary characteristics that uh, we didn't choose. Whether you're black or Asian or Hispanic or have some other ethnic identity, doesn't tell us anything about whether you're a good person or not. It doesn't tell us what level of freedom you should have. And it's something you can't control. So we say it's wrong to restrict people's liberty based on that uh, because of the fact that it's wrong to, in effect, punish people for choosing the wrong parents. And if this is uh, a sound general principle in other areas, I don't see why migration rights should be an exception to it. Uh, If the job you're allowed to have, the educational institution you're allowed to attend, who you're allowed to marry and so forth, if none of that can be dependent on your race or ethnicity or culture, then I think where you're allowed to live should also not be dependent on that either. Uh, The other type of right to exclude argument that is often made, this one is more popular in the U.S., is a more individualistic argument which says that Uh, There is an analogy between a national government and a private homeowner or a private club. So uh, as a homeowner or a property owner, I can exclude people from my property that I don't want to be there. And I don't even necessarily have to have a good reason for excluding them. Uh, It's enough to say, well, I just don't like these people. I don't want them there. Uh, And similarly, I can form a private club, which say includes only baseball fans, but not fans of other sports. And I can exclude uh, those other people, even though they're not intrinsically worse people than uh, baseball fans are. Uh, So the same analogy is is, is made for national governments. Maybe there's a kind of Club USA and the existing members of the club get to exclude other people. Uh, Here, too, I think there are very serious problems with this argument. The most obvious one and the most significant is that if you really believe that a national government is analogous to a private property owner or to a private club, that has very illiberal implications, not just for immigrants, but also for natives. Uh, So, for instance, a private homeowner has every right to say uh, only the Islamic religion or whatever other religion you like best, that's the only religion that can be practiced in my house. Or the only political speech that I will allow is that favorable to the Democratic Party. If you want to express opinions about any other party, I will prevent you from doing that. Uh, And if a national government's rights really are equivalent uh, to those of a a private homeowner or a private club, uh, then you have these dangerous implications. 
and underlying this problem is the fact that one reason why we allow private clubs uh, these sorts of rights is because private clubs are voluntary. You don't come under their authority in most cases unless you want to. On the other hand, governments as they currently exist are essentially mandatory clubs. Uh, they claim authority over a territory, uh, w- whether or not the people in that territory have genuinely accepted them or had any opportunity to say no. Uh, so uh, because real world governments are essentially mandatory clubs rather than voluntary ones, uh, their authority should not be as extensive or should not be analogous to that of uh, voluntary private clubs or private homeowners. Though I would note that, uh, as I do in the book, that even for many private organizations, uh, in many societies, we have anti-discrimination laws, which prevent them from discriminating on the basis of things like race, ethnicity, and the like. Uh, and to the extent that where you were born is also a characteristic analogous to race or ethnicity, if you believe in anti-discrimination laws for large private institutions that forbid them to discriminate on that basis, then the same logic applies to governments as well. Fantastic. Um, so, uh I want to make sure that we 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 get to 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 cover the the three bases. So, um, can you tell us a little bit about the 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 the, the third site of foot voting, the sort of private sector uh, uh, site? And in the book, you you talk a lot about um, people's choosing to live within various kinds of um, communities, um, um, uh, sometimes gated communities or or planned neighborhoods. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. There are many opportunities for people to vote with their feet in the private sector and often in ways that enable them to consume the or the same sorts of services that are offered by local or regional governments. Uh, one big example is private planned communities, things like condominiums and homeowners associations and the like. Almost 70 million Americans already live in these kinds of communities, uh, which gives the lie to a notion that they're only available to a few rich people or that these are just tools by which the rich wall themselves off from the rest of society. The vast majority of people who live in these kind of communities are not, in fact, rich. Uh, and a big advantage of private planned communities over foot voting between government jurisdictions is that you can have many more options within a given territory and therefore moving costs are lower and there's a greater range of freedom of choice. Uh, in addition, uh, often... Uh, these communities provide more effective or more efficient services of various kinds than the government can. Uh, and the same thing is true for a lot of other private organizations which provide services similar to those provided by governments, private schools, also even private security guards uh, or private security services. We often assume that you know if there's one service that only government can provide, it's security. But in the United States and actually in quite a lot of other countries as well, we actually already have many more private security guards than we do public police. Uh, so that's a sign that uh, at least some kind of security uh, can be provided, not just by the government, but by the private sector. And in the book, I discuss a variety of uh, options by means of which we can make uh, these kinds of private foot voting opportunities more available to more people. Because I do recognize, even though even now, it's not just for the wealthy. Uh, still, it is the case that it's often more difficult for the poor uh, to gain access to these sorts of opportunities than for the middle class or the wealthy. 
but there are a variety of reforms that we can adopt, uh, some of which I discuss in the book, that uh, would make private sector foot voting more feasible for more people. Uh, and while private sector foot voting, I don't think, can completely displace regional or local governments or national governments, uh, I think the scope of those uh, foot voting opportunities can be expanded. Cool. Um, so there's a, um, a a kind of concern that um, uh, is raised, um, and I guess most most um, frequently with respect to international foot voting, uh, migration and immigration. Uh, but I suppose that um, uh, there are analogous arguments, or maybe even uh, the very same arguments that some would want to make with respect to. Um, foot voting or, or, or moving within the jurisdiction within different jurisdictions of a federal um, system, uh, and that has to do with the sort of brain drain concern that um, that there's something um, morally problematic or politically um, uh, um, uh, troubling about widespread uh, international foot voting. Because um, uh, the, the 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 talented people with uh, with who've, who've gotten advantages perhaps uh, at home and have developed skills that are very desirable um, uh, in the global marketplace uh, will all move to Silicon Valley and uh, sort of desert uh, their uh, their fellows uh, in in the, the the jurisdiction or the country that they came from. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about why you're not persuaded by those kinds of considerations? Sure. Uh, I'm not persuaded uh, based on two types of considerations, one moral, the other empirical. The moral one is that the the brain drain argument is implicitly based on a premise that the jurisdiction where you're born somehow owns your labor and has a right to compel you to work for them even if you don't want to. I think this theory is deeply inimical to the whole idea of liberalism, to the idea that people should be free and that they own themselves and that they're not owned by the government or by the majority of the people who live in their society. Uh, and this is why we reject slavery and forced labor. Uh, and it's also why we should reject the brain drain theory of uh, restricting migration. Uh, I would add that the brain drain theory also has deeply liberal implications, not just for migration, but for other things, uh, that if the idea is that because you're talented or because you have some particular type of skill, uh, you should stay in your home country or home community and work for it, then it follows not just that you should be you can be prevented from leaving, uh, but that the government can restrict your occupational choice. Let's say that you're very talented at being a doctor or a scientist, but you just don't like science or you don't like medicine, and therefore you decide that you want to become an artist, even though you know, you'll probably be only a mediocre artist, whereas you'd be a very good doctor or scientist. Uh, on this theory, the government should be able to force you to be a scientist or a doctor rather than an artist, because after all, that's the way in which your big brain, so to speak, could most help uh, your community. Uh, the second objection that I have to this is more empirical, which is that it is not actually the case that migration uh, necessarily hurts the people who stay in the country that is left. Uh, one, uh, on, in many cases, it can actually help them. One big way is through international remittances. In such countries as 
El Salvador and Mexico, which have large diasporas and wealthier nation, the substantial proportion of the national income actually comes from remittances sent by uh, relatives of people who live there, who live in the United States or Western Europe or other uh, wealthier societies. And uh, those remittances make their families back home better off. In addition, having a diaspora of people that live in wealthier and freer societies, there's some evidence that that facilitates the spread of ideas back home, uh, and it can help promote economic and political liberalization in those countries. I admit this evidence is not completely clear. The studies are, are a bit conflicting, but there's some evidence that this is true. And you can sort of intuitively see how this is the case. If you have relatives who live in societies with better and freer governments, uh, you pr- uh, particularly in the modern situation with modern communication technology, you can communicate with those relatives. You can learn that there is, in fact, the possibility of better policies and better government than your society currently has. Uh, and I think the example effect of the U.S. and Western Europe in that respect has helped promote at least some degree of liberalization and democratization in Latin America and elsewhere. Uh, and while I don't want to overstate this too much, I think it is a real effect and it's a way in which uh, the interests of the sending nation and of the receiving nation or and of the immigrants uh, are not conflicting, but actually mutually reinforcing. But even in situations where there is a real brain drain, I would and, and it, there is some economic harm to the sending country, uh, I think we still don't have the right to, in effect, compel people to labor in a particular place merely because we somehow feel that the uh, people in that place could benefit from that labor. Good. And, and I take it that um, uh, given the, the kinds of arguments you just laid out, that you know they, they, they hold a fortiori for the, the, the less sophisticated version of the brain drain argument, which is the, you know, people should stay home and you know, fix their own countries before moving, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> moving abroad. Yeah, this is a slightly different uh, variant that says you have a duty to fix your own country. Uh, so Donald Trump actually brought up this notion in a speech United Nations, but you often hear it uh, elsewhere. Uh, and here I have several uh, kinds of objections. One is the one I already made that just says you don't have a duty to be forced to labor uh, in your home country in other ways. You also don't have a duty to uh, try to fix the institutions of your home country. And that's particularly true if, as in the vast majority of cases, the flaws in those institutions are not your fault. Uh, in the average Chinese person or the average North Korean or Cuban is not responsible for the fact that those countries have horrible authoritarian governments. Uh, and in addition, that average person would have very little chance of being successful uh, at fixing uh, those institutions. So it's not simply a matter of, well, if I get to work, I can fix those institutions. Or you know, if the average Cuban gets to work, he can fix the horrible flaws of Cuban communism. For most average people, their chances of succeeding in doing this are extremely low. And I would add that in repressive authoritarian societies, trying to do it uh, will often endanger you or your family. Uh, I think most of the Americans or Europeans who make such claims Uh, If they themselves were living in North Korea or Cuba or China 
or another oppressive society, I think they might very well hesitate to take the kind of risks that inhere in being a dissident in those countries. We honor those dissidents and admire them, but I don't think you have a moral duty to take dangerous risks with your life uh, to be a dissident. Rather, I think you have the right to to move if the opportunity arises uh, and moving is not blameworthy. Indeed, often it's praiseworthy in that you're creating uh, greater freedom and opportunities, not just for yourself, but also often for your family as well. I certainly am very grateful that my parents decided to leave the Soviet Union as opposed to staying there and trying to, quote unquote, fix it. Uh, it certainly uh, you know, enormously uh, benefited me, not, not just economically, but in terms of uh, the amount of freedom and opportunity that, uh, that I enjoy more generally. And the same thing is true, by the way, for uh, the descendants of immigrants uh, who are the uh, ancestors of the vast majority of Americans today, if this fix your own country theory is true, uh, then uh, most of the people, then uh, the people from whom most American Jews are descended, they should have stayed in Europe and tried to fix the Russian empire or the Austro-Hungarian empire. Donald Trump's grandfather should have stayed in Germany and tried to fix that country. Uh, The, uh, the, Ancestors of most Irish Americans should have stayed in Ireland and tried to fix the British Empire and so on. Good. Um, So you've been very generous with your time. um, And I wanted to make sure that we um, get to talk about uh, sort of one of the latter chapters of the book, which is about um, the constitutional questions and and questions of constitutional design. Um, So given the um, importance of foot voting and let's – uh, you've laid out a very um, compelling case. Um, the seventh chapter now talks about ways in which um, constitutions can be um, revised or uh, different kinds of constitutional mechanisms can be introduced um, uh, to help um, facilitate and protect uh, foot voting. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So in chapter seven, I talk about how institutional design in constitutions can be used to maximize opportunities for voting while dealing with various downsides. There are many different aspects. I'll just mention a few. One obvious one is uh, to allow for freedom of movement. Uh, In some societies, there are actually significant restrictions, not just on immigration, but also on internal freedom of movement. A constitutional framework which forbids such restrictions is desirable uh, over time. We've developed that in the U.S., but it certainly can't be taken for granted. And even in the U.S., we have some constraints on it, which it would be good to sweep away. Uh, A second uh, aspect that uh, can be helpful is restrictions on the national government's ability to exclude international migrants, which actually I think was built into the original meaning of the U.S. Constitution, but over time uh, has been lost. And uh, if we can't simply have a strong presumption of free migration, uh, then we can potentially have uh, a a system like Canada or Australia where regional governments are allowed to uh, themselves offer visas to potential migrants over and above whatever the national government would allow. That can expand freedom of movement. I also talk about how various protections for individual rights, freedom of speech, property rights, economic liberties, freedom of religion, and others, that all of these can facilitate foot voting, both between jurisdictions and in the, and in the private sector. Uh, and finally, I discussed some ways in which 
uh, constitutional frameworks can help mitigate downsides uh, of or potential downsides of migration as well. And I would add here that uh, just as there are similarities in the constitutional design elements that can facilitate international uh, and internal migration, so too most of the arguments against international migration that are usually raised are, if taken seriously, ones that can be raised against internal migration as well. If you believe that the dominant ethnic group in a particular territory can exclude other people, then the same might be true of a state or region which has a dominant ethnic group. Uh, perhaps native Hawaiians should be allowed to exclude people who are not native Hawaiians from Hawaii. Uh, or perhaps you know, the, the French-speaking majority in Quebec should be able to exclude English Canadians and so on. Uh, similarly, uh, if you believe that we can exclude immigrants on the theory that they might overburden the welfare state uh, or that they might have bad cultural values or the like, uh, why not exclude internal migrants moving from poorer regions to wealthier ones where uh, you know, there might be higher welfare benefits uh, and the like. Uh, but fortunately, the answers that I give to these sorts of objections, I think, can apply uh, in most cases to both the internal uh, and uh, international uh, situation. Uh, I do devote a chapter uh, to sort of practical consequentialist objections to free migration, which we haven't really had the time to talk about, but it's a complement uh, to the chapter that we did talk about, uh, about uh, inherent rights to exclude uh, the idea that uh, jurisdictions can exclude people regardless of uh, you know, the reason that they just have an inherent right to block people. Uh, there are others who say they can exclude based on particular bad consequences. And in the book, I develop a framework for assessing those kinds of arguments and explain why, in most cases, those arguments don't justify nearly as much exclusion as they claim to. Well, Ilya, you've been really, really uh, generous. And, you know, I, I want to thank you for, for joining me on New Books and Philosophy. The book uh, is a real is a real pleasure to read. It's um, uh, concise and clear uh, but also, um, uh, um, you know, really uh, uh, forthright and 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 compelling with the arguments. Thank you so much. That's very kind of you to say. Um, so it's been a pleasure to talk to you, and um, I want to thank you, listeners, uh, for joining us today for the discussion uh, of Ilya Soman's new book, which is titled "Free to Move." Um, the subtitle is "Foot Voting, Migration, and Political Freedom." Uh, the book is uh, just out now uh, with Oxford University Press. Thank you for listening to New Books in Philosophy. Bye for now.